What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Hello, today's guest is a writer, a reporter, and world traveler, author of the Moon Boston Travel Guide, hospitality beat reporter at Skift, ladies and gentlemen, Cameron Sperance. Hey, Cameron, how are you? Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. Doing well. Thank you for joining. I want to say and share with everyone that since the beginning of the pandemic, um, it's been so like crazy and turmoil filled for our whole industry. But one of the bright spots that have come out of it are just new relationships. And I really value the relationship that I've developed with you as we were kind of navigating this whole thing, or you were, and I was, and we were able to connect on a, on a much deeper level. And I think that the other thing that I love about doing this podcast in particular is I get to, pe- to speak to people who have dream jobs that I would love to aspire to have and to be a travel writer like you have been um, and are, um, I'm envious of that. So like, how did you get into writing travel guides from Memphis and moving up to Boston? Yeah, I, that was very fortuitous. Um, I, I, I think it, it was coming at the, it just happened to reach out to the publishing company at the right time. Um, they were looking to do a book on Boston and they, they just happened to like that where I was coming from as a person who moved up from the South, um, fell in love and bought with Boston and going to school there and then just never left. So kind of making it my adopted second home and, or hometown rather. And, uh, it, it was, I hate to say it was just pure luck. And also just having kind of some experience in writing for local publications here in Boston. Um, yeah, it, 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 it went in my favor, thank goodness. And so, and how did you choose the road to covering our industry and being such a, doing such great coverage of it as well? How did you choose hospitality or how did it choose you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely did not start out thinking I was going to be a hotel reporter. My, uh, I, I interned for the celebrity gossip column here in Boston for the Boston Ooh. Herald. Which um, one? Uh, it, it was called the Inside Track, and there were oh. there were track gals, Gail Fee, Laura Raposa, who uh, both remain very near and dear friends. And uh, they they just kind of taught me how to how to make deadlines and be kind of keep an eye out on, on a good quote, and so kind of laid the fundamentals for what I hope is is an enjoyable reading at Skift. It is enjoyable, and I want to get to that because the content you you and your team are creating is has just been super informative, and I and I love reading it for a lot of different reasons, which I'll get into. Um, but going from Memphis to Boston to celebrity like how did you choose hospitality and the question i always ask is in all of these explorations that you've done in writing the the travel guide for boston um like how do you define hospitality yeah definitely i I mean like i I think it's that southern um route but also like in in the last year seeing how hotels have responded um I, i think ultimately it just boils down to providing that home away from home experience and just kind of with care and compassion and service with a smile that that's what hospitality is for me and I think it's more important than ever 
especially as even pre-pandemic, you started seeing other travel sectors kind of remove that element. Um, I, I feel like everyone was kind of complaining about how the airlines got pretty bare bones for a while in terms of service and things like that. And hotels, I mean, even now, I was at the Alice uh, conference a month ago, and I was asking people, different hotel executives, like, what keeps you up at night? And um, one, of, one of the top answers was, how do we maintain breakfast service? And I think, like, that's kind of a good indication of, yeah, I think services have been pared back in the pandemic just for sheer financial survival. But at the end of the day, they're still kind of keeping an eye out on how to kind of provide that sort of homey feel, even if it's mm -hmm. just a, a grab-and-go breakfast uh, box at, at your local limited service hotel. So I love the home away from home and thinking about, and as you were saying that I had pictures of Graceland <laughs> and the jungle room. Yes. And, and I was really disappointed when I went to Graceland and we got to see the whole first ground, the first floor. I wanted to see upstairs. I wanted to see how Elvis lived there. It, it's funny with Graceland there. I, I swear like every like five or 10 years, they would do like a drawing of like, you could go upstairs. Um, so I think, I think there are a limited number of people who've been able to go beyond the shag carpeting of, the, of ground floor to up in whatever those mysterious rooms are. Mm. <laughs> well, his idea of home was, is just like wild and, and so different from anything that I would ever consider home. Um, but also enjoyable to walk through. And I'd love to get up to that second floor. Um, but when you think about home away from home and coming from Memphis and that idea of Southern hospitality, like what do you look for? And maybe it's because you're noticing that things are missing now. Like mm -hmm. what do you, what do you strive for to really feel comfortable when you're on the road? I, I think, you know, I'm not necessarily the person who needs turn down service or things like that. It really comes down to just sort of the people element. And like, is it, are you getting kind of that, warm greeting, even if you're checking in at like 11 o'clock at night. Um, that, I, I think it's really, you can tell if people are being treated well um, at, mm -hmm. at the hotel they're working at and that kind of permeates through how they're engaging with their guests. And, and so that's sort of what I look for. If, um, if they're smiling, I'm smiling. And that's kind of, but also oh. I mean, who doesn't love nice bedding and a, and a great breakfast spread? Um, I don't know if we can say breakfast buffet anymore because of the pandemic, but uh, back in the day, I love those too. Yeah. Um, you said something in that about a, a smile for a smile and just, and it's the people and treating others how you'd be treated. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my budding relationship with you and also like paying attention to skift more in every media outlet that I can um, just so I can have a better understanding of the world is there's this theme that's been going through and I see it in the hotels, the, the hotel operators that I'm talking to, also the entrepreneurs. And I also see it with you where there's this idea of, okay, how can we bring up the people who are below us on the org chart, right? How can mm -hmm. we coach them up and make leaders out of them? Mm -hmm. And I, there were a couple of times you were, you were asking me, Hey, do you have any um, ideas on this particular subject? Because I really want to give uh, an up and coming writer an opportunity to run with something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a tremendous opportunity within hotels and just life. And it's just giving to others and helping coach up others. Um, tell me about your experience and how you guys do that at Skiff. Cause like, I, I love that. I always have this vision of 
you know, people in the, in the, in the reporter bullpen, like at the Daily Planet and Jameson smoking the cigar and everyone's kind of covering their own story. But I really get this feeling, and maybe it's a hospitality thing where you're sharing uh, with your team and very open about it. And I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the many things that I, I have loved working for Skift is, I mean, they definitely will take a chance on people. And I mean, it's a huge opportunity if you so decide to run with it. I mean, for kind of rewinding a little bit, I didn't just go from like interning at a celebrity gossip column to <laughs> becoming a hotel reporter. Like I, I then went out and I had like a temporary gig with the business section at the Herald. Um, and, and then that freelanced a bit and then started reporting on commercial real estate. So it kind of all built up to then where my editor reached out and was like, hey, have you thought about um, covering the hotel beat? And mm -hmm. I, I mean, case in point with how just kind of the, the culture is at Skift is uh, sure I had covered commercial real estate broadly and done some hotel reporting as well I loved it I loved the people in it but I had never done it full-time or like that is my beat so I mean I, I think um, just as my editor kind of took a chance on me and you know let's see if he can actually like narrow his scope and just focus on the hotel industry um, I, that's what I've liked to do this past year and a half that I've been with the company is as we've had people come in after me, um, whether it's interns or contributing writers, et cetera, um, I, I try to kind of pay it forward as much as I can, still being what I think is relatively new. Um, and just, you know, if, if they're looking for sources or looking for story ideas, um, as you know, I come knocking on your door of just like kind of what are you hearing in the market, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's just kind of, especially at a time like this, we're all kind of in it together. And, uh, and you really, you really feed like, and, and you really feed me when you reach out to me like that, because I oftentimes I'm dumb. I don't know the answer, but I know so many people within our industry and I love connecting you with them because again, it's about shortening other people's journeys. I mean, Dan, you don't really know the answer. Let's, let's put that out there first. But uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just out very here. connected. So yeah. Well, I've been doing it a long time and I love this industry and I can't imagine myself anywhere else. Going to that time when your editor gave you the chance, right? Mm -hmm. A year and a half ago, mm -hmm. did you, you started just pre-pandemic, correct? I started like two weeks after it had been declared a pandemic. So I, uh, I, I always joke with people, I, I took this job thinking I was going to travel the world. And up until about a month ago, um, I was traveling mainly to my living room so mm -hmm. um it, it, but it, it's been i hate this you know it, it, it's been a very it, it's been a huge opportunity it, a, a tremendous opportunity and as i alluded to in the beginning of our conversation one of the frustrating things about this industry which i love so much and i live it i breathe it it's like i can't escape it i don't want to escape it um Oftentimes, by the time I read things in the Wall Street Journal or the Real Deal or the New York Times or you name all of the publications, Financial Times about our industry in particular, it's always six months after the fact. Mm. So going back to when you started two weeks before pandemic, what was the opportunity and how did your, ed how did your editor or your boss, um, what was the opportunity he presented to you and like, how did you feel when it came to, when it came to you? Yeah. Or she, I don't want to assume he, I think you said he. <laughs> he, he. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I think where I lucked out is even when I was at my like last publication, um, I kept coming back to the, the hotel industry just because um, 
I have a couple of sources here at BU, Boston University School of Hospitality. Um, Pinnacle Advisory is kind of a, a bigger hospitality advisory firm here in town. Um, so like we have kind of, I, I think we punch above our, our, our weight maybe as far as hotel journalism opportunities in Boston at the local level. So I, I, I think that's how I kind of got to build up a little bit of my um, credit that, that I knew what things like RevPAR were and things like that. Um, so it didn't come in completely green, but I, I think the opportunity was why um, why don't you excel with like kind of a, a more narrowed focus rather than, you know, back in the day I was covering the lab markets, the warehouse, like kind of if it was any type of commercial real estate, I was covering it. And I feel like it was kind of very surface level, but it was hard to like dig deep into this. And, um, you know, it, it's strange to say it's, it's a huge opportunity that there was such a catastrophic downturn. But I mean, if there's a time to learn a lot about the hotel industry, it's been over the last 16, 17 months for sure. I totally agree. And I will say the when I, fir when I first started a company in our industry that helped in our industry, it was 2001, August 28th. So I guess that's, oh, it's 20 years ago, right? Yeah. And two oh weeks before September 11th. Yeah, which everything kind of stopped. It all came back, but it was a great time because while everyone was putting out fires and trying to think about what's next, people did have time to take, pick up the phone and take that call mm -hmm. and, and build relationships. And that whole person to person, people, people thing that you, that you mentioned, this is all relational. Everything we do is relational. And this is a, a fabulous time to be able to forge those new relationships and get in here. But going back to my question, that whole six month lag thing, I've really appreciated the things that you've been presenting on because it's happening much more, much quicker. Now there's not a real time thing because people are trying to do deals, mm -hmm. but how have you been able to shrink that gap from the six month mainstream thing that we read about to what you and your teams are doing? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's one of the several reasons I, I jumped and came to Skift is I really, um, I, I would do breaking news pieces, but I was kind of more in that camp of let's do like a very well thought out deep dive six months after the fact. I felt like breaking news um, was a little bit of my my weakness. So I, I viewed it as like, if I'm gonna jump, go to Skift, like I, I think like this is a great opportunity to sort of like build up of like reporting on the news as it comes out. Um, my editor, uh, is always about like writing that great day two story, the day it's happening. So I think there's kind of an expectation as well that um, whether you like it or not, you're going to be doing the, you're, you need to kind of be able to kind of do thoughtful analytics and uh, analysis as it's happening in real time. So, um, and, and it's been, I'm sure if you read those stories, the first few weeks that I'm at Skift, they're, they're not, um, hopefully there there's has been improvement since then but, they're better uh, than anything i could ever write so <laughs> no, and again just gaining inspiration and kind of looking up to the work that you're doing like it helps inform how we're here and what's happening right now no, um, it's, I mean, like one of the i i think something that i wasn't doing like on a regular basis are quarterly earnings calls and i mean like those can be pretty bland because if you mm -hmm. listen to them i mean like they all kind of I, I swear each executive team picks a theme and like they all kind of follow it each earning season so you kind of have to find a way to 
spice it up or like kind of link things. And um, that's usually what I try to do is kind of wait until like the Q&A comes out and like you'll usually find something in there that um, that that ends up being a story. I mean, like Hyatt, for instance, they they just made their big acquisition with with Apple, but a week or two beforehand, um, they were hinting it on, on the earnings call that they were looking to expand more into Europe. So I, I think like that's kind of an example of I, I, I'm doing that in the hotel side, but Skift is doing it across a lot of travel beats. We have great team with with airlines and global tourism and corporate travel. So yeah, that's that's us. <laughs> I love it. And then if, so going back to when you're starting there, the pandemic hasn't been named, you get this assignment from your editor. How are you feeling? How did he make you feel comfortable? Like how did, how does your editor get the best out of you? And like, how can that tie into this overall idea of what hospitality is and in, in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, <laughs> at that point so when i did come it, it ha the pandemic was there um it, it was it was very new um there was a lot of uncertainty but i i mean it was literally just kind of he, he made a lot of great introductions on my behalf of you know this is who you need to know at hilton marriott etc cetera, etc cetera. um and just kind of it, it was kind of like anyone, it's sort of, you have a job to do while also kind of making sure everyone's doing okay mentally because we had never seen anything like that. So it, it was mm. struck a right, a, a very careful balance um, because I mean, at the end of the day, we're also, we're there for a reason and that's to report on this industry. Yeah, and then take me to that newsroom or virtual or in-person where you guys are coming up with ideas and capturing them and saying, okay, run with that. And how did that, how do you guys come up with the ideas and the themes and, and quarterback them out? Like, I'm very intrigued by that process. Yeah. I mean, in the depths of the pandemic, we were having um, like daily edit meetings um, of just kind of like what's, what's happening, et cetera, et cetera. We have a document that kind of outlines um, what everyone's working on and I, I mean, like any business, we have kind of the, the chat channels going of like, do you have a source for here, et cetera? Because I mean, there was also so much crossover with the pandemic. I mean, mm -hmm. if corporate travel or business travel is down, airlines and hotels are both feeling that. Um, cruises, that industry goes on hiatus. Um, at, at the time, South Florida hotels were, were not doing great. And it's before people suddenly are, everyone's in mass going to... Um, South Florida for winter vacation, but I mean, it, it, it all links together. So, I mean, it, it again goes back to if, if I was going to move to a new company, it was kind of a, I, I hate to say great time because it, it, it wasn't on as far as just the catastrophe that was happening in travel, but um, there was a quick camaraderie built um, early on because everyone's just kind of helping each other out and trying to, you know, get, get the, um, best news that we can out for our, uh, or, or I guess most informed news that we can out to our readers because it, it, it's more important than ever. Yeah. And then, so I, I, you know, I'm envisioning waking up at four in the morning, listening to these glorious earnings calls, right? You're just <laughs> Sometimes so amazing. two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. So two Let's in the not morning. Not forget our friends in Paris. <laughs> so that's, that's the, uh, you know, you're, you're down in the ditch. You're, that's your yeoman's work. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're looking for your story there. And then on the other side, you said something um, earlier, you used the word spice. Like the dream is to be traveling all over to cover our industry 
but as you're experiencing it. So mm-hmm. like, do you still see that spice out there? Is that, can you get spicy? When, when are you going to be getting more spicy and getting on the road more? I know you've started, but what, what's your thinking? Yeah. I mean, I, I we just had, um, at the, at the end of July, the Alice conference. So that was kind of my, as I joked around with people, my, my debutante ball of, uh, finally getting out on the road. And, and, and that was good to get to LA, see a couple of different hotels. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, if you, not to promote, but if you read the pages of Skiff right now, I mean, the big question mark is, I think everyone thought we were going in a certain linear path with momentum of getting back on the road. Now Delta variant is kind of putting a giant question mark over that. I was um, chatting with someone earlier who was saying his company is, um, they're, they're starting to issue more uh, or kind of roll back travel um restriction or not roll back travel restrictions, reinforce travel restrictions, I should say. Um, so we'll see. I, I think, but you can still get uh, spicy and I think you can still get great feature stories out there. Um, I, I think it's interesting right now. Um, I, I thought our story today about kind of the, the outlook of membership clubs in the vein of Soho House and Rosewood, which is based in Hong Kong, et cetera. Um, that, that was pretty spicy because we're basically I, so I, copycats. I loved reading that. And actually, I want to get there in a few minutes because it's one of the other things I'm hearing about is just this idea of authenticity as mm-hmm. being your true self as you're dealing with guests or making others feel comfortable. But then there's this whole movement of exclusivity. Yeah. And like, how does that all play off each other? But before we get there, because um, I want to go back to making others feel comfortable because mm-hmm. I think that's really what the, the yeah. crux of all this is. So as a reporter, when you call certain contacts, are they oftentimes I would assume just cause like watching TV, they're a bit standoffish. How do you, how do you make your, the people you're talking to feel comfortable so that they can open up to you and so that you can kind of dig deeper and, and make them feel safe, but also get spicy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's interesting in, in moving to the hotel industry, and I had a couple of um, acquaintances and f- friends and just kind of the reporting industry who had kind of hopped around to different beats. And, and a couple of people had said um, when they were covering hotels, it was the most fun, like the personalities were just next level. And and, and so I, I think there's kind of a built in um attitude that people generally, uh, not the stereotype, but it has been my experience of when I call up a hotel executive, they're, they tend to get spicier right out of the gate than back in the day when I was calling like a warehouse developer. <laughs> and like, it, it was just, it, it had a different type of spice to them. Let's not yeah. discount or diminish warehouse developers, but it, it's just, I think it's a different animal. Um, but I, I mean, it, the other thing too is, you got to be on your phone quite a bit. You got to stay in touch with people and build genuine, you know, connections with people. It's not just, Hey, can you talk to me solely for a soundbite? It's, you know, generally building. And and I mean, again, because I was coming in um, for the first time to cover hotels exclusively, I I have kind of leaned on people a little bit more, um, purely just on, hey, am, am I getting this right? Does this sound a certain way to you? Or am I misreading this entirely? Um, 
so that's been kind of a good way to build up camaraderie or, or just kind of trust, I guess, is, is the better word there um, in, in trying to ask these people to, to educate me at the same time, help me with the story. Yeah, I, I totally feel that because when you say that there, there are these bigger and larger than life personalities that are drawn to this industry, one of the things that I always find, and, and I say this a lot, is I feel like everyone who's involved in our industry wants to design, build, own, operate a bar that they could have their friends over, they can all drink at, they can get comfortable, get loose, and just kind of be real, be authentic, be genuine. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also this uh, thread that ties through it all of curiosity, right? And I think you being a reporter, you're wired as curious, but I do genuinely believe that in order to be successful in delivering hospitality, you have to really be curious about who's in front of you at this given moment. And it doesn't have to be in a hotel or a restaurant. It could be anywhere. And how do you feed that curiosity for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think, again, it, it's kind of looking at, when I look at my story ideas, I mean, I, I try to not fall into the same, um, I guess, themes. So, I mean, we do a Monday deals and development briefing, which kind of, I think, whets my real estate appetite and kind of what I had been doing for a while of just sort of transactions, investments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, it, it would be easy to kind of make that every story of the day that week. However, um, just in, in being curious, you then got to go into different themes. Is it labor. That's a, a big thing. We did a story earlier in the pandemic um, that I, I, I've been thinking about revisiting, and it was about like hospitality students. And, you know, what are you thinking when you're graduating into this, you know, what of a world <laughs> right now? And, and how do you, how do you cope with that? Um, so I, I think it's just kind of a, basically kind of recognizing that hospitality is not just like one door. There are plenty of doors to open and kind of figure out what the story is there because I mean, there's sustainability, there's labor, there's supply chains and logistics. And I mean, we could go on and on and on. It's, it's just don't, don't trap yourself or box yourself into to any corner. It's a microcosm for everything going on. And maybe exactly. as it's a more volatile segment of real estate, um, you can really learn so much from the high, the peaks and the valleys. Right? Oh, absolutely. And maybe you get higher peaks and higher valleys than other businesses. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating that on, on the one hand, you can kind of still have that commercial real estate story of you're trying to get maximum returns on investment in building one of these things. But then at the same time, kind of going back to that, um, hospitality school story, um, what just like struck me with that is kind of the, the compassion and humanity of it is this is just a, a you know, a, a group of students who at the end of the day, they want to make people, people feel great um, in their daily lives. And I mean, it's just like, that's, that's, that's endearing. And it's just everything in between that. And I've heard that many people who were talking to those recent graduates from the hospitality schools and also just people that want to get involved in hospitality from interns to day jobs, hourly, salary, the whole gamut. Now is the best time to get involved in our industry because you will have so much opportunity. You will have more than enough rope 
to hang yourself with, so to speak. And you will, you, you will be able to take risks and, and just learn on the job and go. Absolutely. Are you seeing that? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like what was fascinating and I've kind of watched this happen over the last year and more recently is um, some of these hospitality schools, I think have realized these are very transferable skills. So some of them have started adding programs related to senior and student housing. Um, now that you have kind of we work adding, um, however, we work comes back as, um, it, which I think is going to have more of an important role than ever in, in, in the concept of like the future of work. There's there was always a hospitality element to we work that I, I think people that's why it made it so successful and popular um, pre pandemic. And I, I mean, it, it just kind of runs the gamut. There's so many different. Um, industries out there that are trying to get a little bit more hospitable that I think this has been a wake-up call of just like how the, the the tentacles of hospitality fan out into so many different industries. Yeah. Um, I'm also jealous and envious that you've written travel books because to me that <laughs> seems like dream job. Um, how did you stumble into that? Because I think everyone out there, maybe not, I believe everyone out there in some way would always want to be a travel writer. Yeah, it, it's, um, it was sort of in my period between um, going from the Herald and celebrity gossip and, and, and kind of broad business to then I was freelancing for anyone who would have me and it just kind of living online and seeing what would come and the publisher um, put a post of like, we're looking at doing a, a Boston travel guide, any local writers interested, et cetera, et cetera. So literally just responded to kind of a classified ad saying, I'm, I'm a local writer, um, I love travel. And it, it kind of snowballed from there, uh, sent a couple of sample chapters in and um, I, I was doing some like freelance marketing for a local hotel at the time as well. And I, I think like that kind of, and I was doing sort of, internally for guests like travel like blogs and guides and recommendations etc so it all kind of came together of proving that uh I, I hopefully know what i'm talking about when it comes to boston now in that in the because you did two guides you did one boston in general and then one that was <laughs> like i think bars and restaurants or nightlife <laughs> so in in both in those both of those two works and doing all of your exploration you're out you're investigating right you're you're experiencing what <laughs> do you think was the what was the coolest experience in from both of those from your from your experience? It was very fascinating to kind of because when it came out, I was probably five year five or six years removed from college, and it was mm -hmm. interesting revisiting the places that, like in college, I was like, "This is like the end all be all," and then going back as somewhat of an adult and being like, well, you know, it's <laughs> maybe this one won't make it into the final edition of the, of the book. Um, hopefully a little bit wiser by now. Um, no, it, it was, it, there was a little bit of that, but it was also, um, I, I think a fun way to get into even deeper into parts of the Boston that I hadn't explored, just thinking like, oh, this is a tourist trap, et cetera, et cetera. And like finally doing those things, finally walking the full freedom trail and- uh. It, it was kind of a, a great... The British are coming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I, I went to Paul Revere's house. I went to um, Lexington and Concord. So it was really uh, eye-opening to get to 
have that full like tourist experience and learn a lot about about the city and then kind of frame it in a way where it, it, it wasn't so hokey and um so like yes these are the places you should still visit and you know don't let cranky bostonians poo-poo that you're you know taking up to, uh, a spot on the sidewalk because you're walking the freedom trail okay and then so using the freedom trail as an example or not but of all the things that you did hokey or not mm-hmm. and something the cream that rose to the top like mm-hmm. what what was the most surprising and coolest experience that you had like as an actual place or tourist attraction or whatever this is going to sound like so um so like travel writing is cool until you're like a week from deadline and you're like oh geez I need to take a litany of photos to like get to my editor and there were a couple of days where it was like sunrise to sunset I was out like going to take photos and places like that and I I remember it was like this is like five years ago it was a December morning it was like maybe seven o'clock and I was at Walden Pond I was the only one there yeah and and that was really cool where it was like this is I I get it I get like (laughs) why Thoreau would have did what he did why he went to the woods why existentialism was born because it it, oh my god a very like it was just like so quiet so crisp it was literally like i could just Mm -hmm. the only thing i heard were like the twigs beneath my feet and so that was that was really cool i had one of my favorite english teachers growing up he just went off on thoreau in such an incredible way and we really spent so much time in there and just thinking about living life deliberately and going to the woods and and he was such a weird dude back then, right? If you really compared him to other Bostonians at that time, he was mm-hmm. a weird guy. He'd like make pencils and he was just like a, a crafty dude that lived in the woods. Mm-hmm. How did you think about Thoreau after actually going there from maybe not knowing much about him to what's your overall impression of him now and how can we learn from him? I mean, it, it, it definitely, I, I think it kind of, was coinciding where I I think (laughs) a lot of people are kind of coming to this realization of um, not to boil it down to me time, but I I think there's no, please, this is all about you because I I think I know where you're going. And I love this. In general, the concept of like kind of doing a little self-isolation and thoughtfulness and meditation or just whatever you need to do to kind of clear your, clear your mind and, and get focused. Um, I think we can all have a little thorough moment uh, and that, and that's sort of where I, I stem from is I, I, I think I can be a little bit of a loner from time to time. And uh, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel as bad about it after, uh, after that December morning while I was snapping photos. Wow. And then do you consider yourself a millennial? Are you in that demographic? Yeah, I think I'm like right in the middle of it. Okay. So I feel like Thoreau may have been the first millennial because if you think about millennials and travel and things, it's more about experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's more about just getting out there, these digital nomads and all this. And maybe Henry David Thoreau was the, the first millennial. First millennial, couple centuries too soon. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. I have a client up there. Uh, it's a design firm called Parker Torres and their offices were right near um, Walden Pond. And I remember on two occasions, I went up there and came back and just drove through. And I actually got to see all the things that I've, learned about. And then, you know, you even tie it into, um, I guess even like where you're from in Memphis and the Lorraine motel and his writings on civil disobedience and, and, it, and it's all happening right now. I think we could all 
go back and learn so much more from Thoreau. And actually now I really want to dust off my Thoreau. And because I think there's a new movement forward that I think he could be like the kernel of, right? Or that we can all learn from. Absolutely. I mean, like that's kind of um, a, a huge question in travel right now is not just building back, building back better, thoughtful travel, um, you know, it, it skiffed the uh, the concept of over-tourism is, is, is a big one that is discussed and our CEO Rafa uh, coined the term. And it's very, uh, I think like right now, a lot of these things are, are definitely at the forefront of like, how do, how do we rebuild, especially, um, mm. right? I, I think the reports that you hear of like, it's, it's a great time to be in Venice right now because there just aren't that many people around. And I, I think like uh, there's going to be a lot more value in, as you said, experiences and just not the, I, I guess, same formula. So two things on that, the, on the over, over tourism, mm-hmm. is it called over tourism? Um, I was just in Croatia and, you know, went down the coast and we were in Dubrovnik which is a walled city, all super tight. And I actually don't enjoy going to these UNESCO World Heritage sites because they're just <laughs> so crowded. But being there, there were no cruise ships and it was actually, it was super hot, but it was actually, I could enjoy it and walk through and and kind of feel like Daenerys from <laughs> uh, A Game of Thrones, just kind of walking through, or she actually flew down and destroyed the whole city, but maybe more like Cersei walking down those shame yeah. steps without people bumping into me all sweaty. Um, I, on flying out there, I was on the, on the flight. The flight attendant said that he had just gone to Rome and he asked before, he's like, oh, have you ever been to the Trevi Fountain? And I said, oh yeah, a bunch of times. And it's always so crowded and there's people shooting those lighty things up into the air and it's just really annoying, but I wanna go and I wanna see the sculpture and it's amazing in that piazza. He said he, the week before he went with his mom, and there were four people in the whole piazza. Wow. So I do think that this is a time to kind of explore. And I also heard, and I don't know if you've heard, but other cities, I think Dubrovnik is really limiting the return of cruise ships, maybe only one at a time or none during the week. And I heard something about Venice. Do you know anything more about that? Yeah, I, I know, like, because uh, didn't Key West ban them um and i don't know I think venice is, is similarly because i mean like before the pandemic it seemed like pardon me if i'm wrong here like each year there would be that like terrible youtube video of like this cruise ship like kind of putting the reverse thrust in and you see it like wipe out like a pier and like flood part of venice and it's just like yeah i <laughs> or it comes to town with venice with like and it, it, everyone gets the norovirus and then can't they can't leave you know Mm. Yeah, it would be so great to, I mean, I've only been on one cruise. It's, I think everyone should try it out. It's not my thing at all, not my jam, um, but it does overwhelm a location. Yeah, I can, I, I can see that. I was, during the um, pandemic, we were out in Provincetown and pre-pandemic, they had started, there was one cruise ship um, that had come in, just like, I think kind of like test the waters of like what it would be like and it wasn't even it, it was nowhere the size of like some of these massive cruise ships you see but I mean even just like a a mid-sized cruise ship was kind of overwhelming to our our fair little town at the end of Cape Cod 
Totally. And also recent overwhelming of what was it? This all the circuit party, the was it circuit weekend or whatever it's called. Um, it was raining, everyone was inside, and it was like ground zero for what a phase three, phase four of, of pandemic. How was that for you? Um, so luckily we were not there for that. And and I also like to uh strike out at some of the media, it is officially called July 4th week. Circuit week is just what it is known unofficially as because um it, it, it's been fascinating because we've been back to p-town quite a bit um mm-hmm. and, and talking a couple of friends own businesses there and um it's I, I think if it had to happen it's thank goodness it was there where it's heavily vaccinated and kind of i think a quick response of indoor mask mandates suddenly and i think everyone kind of was pretty quick to be able to trace where they had been, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting too is kind of not to plug vac- vaccine efficacy, but one thing that has been going making its way around town is between that weekend and Bear Week, the final, the weekend after, there were I guess one hundred and twenty thousand visitors to P Town. A um, thousand people got it. So the reverse way of looking at it is 119,000 people did not get it. So what's um, the uh, mask up the percentage on that? I wonder if what that percentage in P-Town, if you could compare that percentage to Sturgis and the big, Mm -hmm. the motorcycle rally. I wonder, I I bet you P-Town was a lot less transmission. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure there will be a white paper or two that that emerged from this. Oh, it's funny. on bear weekend, just a funny story. <laughs> my first weekend away with my wife, when we first started dating about 21, 22 years ago, we were living in San Francisco and you could only do like two night stays up at the Russian river. Mm-hmm. But there was this one guy, it was before everything was online and I could, um, you could do one night. So we mm-hmm. could only afford one night. So we found this one place. I said, okay, let's go there. There are all these like little cabins. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I said, and it was non-refundable because it's one night. It was a special thing. So then I, after I paid and then I said, Hey, send me the website. I looked and it was bare weekend up at this place that my wife <laughs> went to. We had the best time. It was awesome. Yeah. It's, it, it's a popular, it, it's P town equivalent is, is very popular too. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving aside from the pandemic, cause I know that's come up a lot and like we're in it. Um, Looking forward, as far as the chart you path to spicy journalism on the on the hospitality beat, and that also that dream job of like being a travel writer, um, what's keeping you up at night on the path to spicy? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is going to be a lot of tension around do like how many people stick with hospitality how many people leave either on the labor level of people who are just like i'm tired of doing this it's long hours etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm going to take these skills and go work in an entirely different industry I, th- I think that's kind of um a huge question especially after we've heard a lot of hotel CEOs say, oh, like once the extra federal unemployment benefits lapse next week now, um, it will, all of our labor problems are going to be solved. I I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I Mm. I think that's going to be, there's a huge labor story that just continues to 
evolve that's definitely keeping me up. Um, I, I think also there's going to be conflict at, at the owner level of people who are just like, I have taken this as long as I can and I am handing over the keys to whoever's going to buy it. And I think that's going to be a huge feeding frenzy from big brands as well as smaller ones who think, and I, I, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that their thought is real, that staying smaller is better and customers respond better to that. So um, that's one. And I also just think like the overall face of hospitality. I mean, like, what does it look like? Um, and, and who are the people who are making those decisions? Um, that's huge. I, I, I think, as I said, at the Alice conference, everyone was saying the concept of a breakfast was keeping them up um, at night. I think housekeeping is another big one. Um, this push to contactless, if the labor problem doesn't solve itself, do we look into robotics and automation in any way? Um, this is in, in many ways a industry that I, I don't think has really embraced technology as much as it could. And that's, there's going to be a lot of friction there if it, if it does, if and when, I mean, it already has with contactless check-in and check-out. Um, if, if it goes a step further and the technology kind of gets to where it can do more, um, that's that's pretty disruptive. Yeah, I'm going to quote Digital Underground on that one, and I think the answer is D. All of the above. Mm. I think everything is being tried right now, and it's really exciting. And from labor to robotics to technology, and I don't we're we're in this kind of like crucible trying to like figure mm -hmm. it out right now. I that's amazing. And then also, you know, you go back to before the pandemic. You ask any general manager what kept them up at night. It was whether their housekeepers were going to show up. Yeah. And now I, I think that there's a structural labor issue. And it's really weird because if you, if, if you look at retail from when Amazon happened and, mm -hmm. or online retailing, I think we lost 4 million retail jobs over the past however many years. And then you throw in the 5 million, I think I saw that number on the hospitality side. It's like, where did those 10 million people go? Like, what are they, where, where are they? What, where are they now? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the other thing too, to um, plug one of my colleagues works, um, my colleague, Lily, she did this piece of just kind of what's what her happened. last name so that people can oh, look her Lily up. Gurma. Um, she is our, uh, our tourism reporter. And she did a great piece about, you know, what happens if there's just no return of outbound Chinese travelers. And I mean, like the kind of, there's this, we don't know what's going to happen with international travel. I mean, I, I think everyone's kind of, if you listen to any earnings calls, like long-term, yes, things are going to reopen. But I mean, how much longer can people kind of survive? I mean, you had hotels in New York City that were, you know, counting anywhere from a quarter up to a half of their business came from international travel. And I mean, they have to move pretty quick to make up for that. Or I, I also haven't seen any of the Fortune... 500 or even 100 companies say, okay, we're all traveling now. And I feel like we need that domino to fall mm -hmm. to really see an, an effect. Yeah. You know, yeah. on the other thing, um, on, on this whole idea of distress, I've been, and we'll talk about this later because I don't know anything about it, but there's this, uh, um, an upreit, which I haven't heard about where you can take these, um, assets and, put them into a REIT and then they're doing some launch on the New York Stock Exchange. I just read about that somewhere. And that just seems an interesting way to like pool risk for a bunch of investors, I think. 
Um, and then there's this distressed hotel conference in Vegas I just heard about in October. I don't know anything about it, but it just came across my desk. And a lot of people I know hadn't heard anything about it. So I feel like where everyone was kind of holding on to their assets, mm -hmm. um, maybe it's starting to loosen up as things start to stabilize a little bit. Yeah, it, it's, I, I always try to ask people, I mean, like, when are we going to start to see kind of that crashing wave of default distress, bargains that everyone has been like waiting in the sidelines for and the commercial mortgage backed securities like those properties that were in trouble that that number has actually like come down quite a bit it used to be like hotels were, were the leading source of it last year um i think everyone now is sort of expecting that q4 of this year q1 q2 is gonna there's gonna be some movement um i mean you saw today uh the fed chair said that they're gonna kind of pull back on some of the, the stimulus at the Fed level. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think like all signs point to, you gotta, you gotta take the, the life, the, the life raft, the, the training wheels, et cetera, off and just see like, um, how much can this industry hold up by itself? And I think that's where you're going to see, um, as I was saying earlier, a lot of owners just be like, you know what, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Let the free hand as Adam Smith talked about take over. Exactly. Um, so the other thing I wanted to check in with you on, because you had just recently written about this, it's this idea of exclusivity versus authenticity mm -hmm. with respect to hospitality as it pertains to Soho House and Rosewood, which just mm -hmm. said that they're launching a similar model. So I'm a card carrying member of Soho House. I, mm -hmm. For me, it's just great because I know I can always go there and have a table and have a meeting and it's not crowded. But I'm concerned because they just did a, they just did an IPO. Once people do that and enter the capital markets, they have to fuel growth, 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 growth. So, okay, is that, am I going to be able to get that table right now? That's my, that's my, that's how it affects me. The other one is if you look at Rosewood and Soho House and kind of this model of kind of members only and I don't know, leaving other people out because you have to they curate this guest and, and a certain demographic. Are we missing out on that whole idea of travel and experience of others if we're all around our own echo chambers? And mm. how, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think as much as people are talking about exclusivity, et cetera, I think both of the, as far as hotels turning to the Soho House model, um, they just looked at how Soho House fared generally well during the pandemic. And they're like, you know what, it would be nice to have some sort of reliable revenue stream or resilient revenue stream like that. Why not go up for it? Um, and and I, I don't think it's ever going to be like, I, I don't think you would ever see Marriott have as many private clubs as they do hotels, but I think it, it's a little bit of a, a durable division to maybe mm. consider. And I, I don't know if Marriott's actually doing it, but I, I know Rose would look to it. The analyst that I cite in the piece, um, he kind of pointed to IHG's like next tier up loyalty program where you pay like 200 bucks a year um, for even more um, benefits. And it is like another way of like where you basically just have like some sort of guaranteed level of, of income that, that you can bring in. Um, but also the exclusivity part is I, I if 
in talking with Rosewood, it doesn't sound like they're going to have like hundreds of these. And, and one of the things I kept hearing too is as these hotel companies kind of build up their brands a little bit, reverting to this model is kind of another way of almost like showing like, yeah, we might be getting bigger on the global scale, but at the end of the day, we still have this like very exclusive route to who yeah. we are. And so, I mean, if they end up with five, I think that's kind of, there's a little bit more of a way to kind of make this high end than something like Soho House, which, yeah, there's very valid concerns of, you know, Soul Cycle was at one point like the most exclusive sp spot to spend. And then what is it? Equinox took over and there are all these stories well, about how it, it just was kind really, of watered it down. It was really cool because Soho House took a huge risk. I, I don't know, five or eight years ago. I don't remember when, but they basically didn't renew. They didn't like the direction that the club was going mm -hmm. and they didn't renew a bunch of people. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't like that creative, artistic, whatever. Um, they just saw it was something else. And they didn't renew it. And that's that's dangerous. But it's also a, a sign of a very strong brand when you can take a big risk like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like just this week, they said their um, waiting list is higher than it's ever been. So I, I, I think mm -hmm. they hear loud and clear because I mean, during the IPO process, when we were reporting about it. Everyone I would talk to was kind of griping of like, I can't find a, a spot at a table at Soho House, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think especially as more competition emerges i think they're going to have to do something to kind of keep it keep it as tony as it once was mm. and, and also if you look at the hmm. or sorry no go ahead no you go finish your thought no i think what was interesting with the ipo is you saw like kind of all the markets they're considering and i mean like this could get to be a very um large entity if they're looking at everything from palm springs and portland oregon to Shanghai and Tokyo. So, I mean, like that's, I, I think that's a huge spectrum of what's on their radar and they have to find a way to thread the needle and make it feel just as exclusive in, in one as the other. I mean, it's also a great business model because if you, even if you just look at how sticky frequent traveler programs from points and miles and all this, like it creates this brand loyalty that is a, is a huge moat. But then if you're throwing in this recurring revenue where people are paying a lot of money to be a member and also still paying and not getting discounts for things, it, it creates a very loyal and I would say rabid fan base. And I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the future of work argument of if maybe not everyone completely goes to remote work, but I mean, there's going to be a lot more people working remotely than there were before the pandemic and something like Soho House, something like the revitalized WeWork. Um, obviously those are two very different concepts, but at the same time, like it, it does provide a spot for someone to go work for one day a week, two days a week, however often you want to go to. And um, there's a there there, as, as we say uh, on our edit calls, when we're considering if there's a story to be written. There is a there there. And then, okay, so thinking about that as, as you're kind of shifting to speaking about the future, what's exciting you most about the future? Um, the idea of being able to travel again, first off, is, is, is probably top of the list. Um, I think what is interesting, and, and, and I talked to enough um people of how it, it, 
this might get a little wonky of how inflation is actually a good thing for the travel industry mm. and that there's been kind of a reset needing to happen for a long time as it relates to wages, as it relates to just kind of how everything is priced and people are treated, et cetera. And I, I think this kind of goes back to what we've been saying all along, but I, I think what excites me is that like this industry is, I think, go, like truly rebirthing itself uh, across mm -hmm. a host of things, whether it's lifestyle hotel components that are trickling up and down brands that aren't even considered lifestyle hotels, whether it's labor, whether it's um, what gets built where and what concepts work where. Um, I, I think people are looking at just it, everything and anything is on the table. And um, I, th I think it's going to be very exciting to, to report on for the next couple of years. On the labor side, I think it's a combination of wages, immigration, recruiting. Mm -hmm. It's it's again, it's D, all of the above. On the wage side, and I can connect you with him. Um, it's there's a, a guy named Michael Lastoria. I might be pronouncing his last name incorrectly. Mm -hmm. He founded a pizza company called N Pizza that, out of DC, but they there's one up in New York. They're kind of growing all over the place. Uh, but he's been an outspoken advocate of raising his people's wages to attract the best. And he, he's a firm believer that it's, you know, or Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. It, it, it's wages, stupid. Like you have to attract people. People need to make money and feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And I think with his company in particular, there is a super element of being fulfilled there um, just for cult, core value culture wise, but also he's, he's, he's paying for it as well. It's it's definitely it, it is way too stupid, but it's also I, I think, and you've heard a couple of companies say this is learning how to market this industry as one where there is true upward mobility. Again, going back to what we we're saying, of just kind of showing people that sure you may enter at one position, but if you stick with it, there's there's a path to get to company headquarters and management or things like that. And and I think like a lot of people roll their eyes when a CEO is like, I started plunging toilets and, you know, a holiday and wherever. And here I am. But today. it's true. It, it, it is true. But I think like there's, there's not enough of those stories, like kind of up and true. down the line. And, and I think um, the industry really needs to figure out a way to do that because there's, they're just losing too many people. But you've also said a great thing in here about how they're easily transferable skills in our hospitality industry, right? So you could take a starting job doing anything. And once you know how to really engage and listen and act upon the person in front of you to make sure that they're careful, you can take that anywhere. And yeah, I think I it's mean, a really, it's a missing skill, I think, in, in a lot of places because people are just looking at their phones. You got to look at the person in front of you. Well, I mean, like, did, did you see the um, story in the Washington Post this week about Maggie Haberman and just kind of her whole, how she like her career. And I thought it was interesting that when she started it, like, the post or the daily news, I forget which, um, she was bartending a couple of nights a week. And she said, that's kind of how she learned going back to your, um, how do you gain your sources trust? She was like, that's how I kind of figured out people skills and like getting rapport and being conversational, but also kind of drawing out what I, what I want slash need for a story. Yeah. I'm going to be interviewing some bartenders and I just, that's another amazing, just, Hey, open up, tell me everything. They become like psychiatrists as oh, well. Oh yeah. You, know? you, you see the world with that job. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so going back to when travel starts again, if you had the most plum 
travel writing assignment to go somewhere, where would you choose to go right now? Ooh, um, right now, um, you know, it, it, it's, <laughs> I, I, I would say right now I got married right before the pandemic. So I've not gone on a honeymoon yet. And, ah. uh, we are, we've kind of batted around Southeast Asia and like Vietnam and Tokyo and, and kind of just doing a whole tour through Asia. And, and so I, I think I have to say that or else uh, I might not be able to go home tonight uh, if that's not like the trip at the top of my list. Well, you brought up the, the return or not return of the Chinese tourist. When I lived in Vietnam, with my family, we went to Siem Reap, which is another UNESCO World Heritage Site, yeah. and it's freaking amazing. There were so many people. So once it opens up down there, that would be a great one to get to. Definitely, definitely. Awesome. So I have, um, like, not that I'm into vision boards, but I have like a million different uh, hotel potentials that are just kind of the list goes longer and longer with each day. Well, my wife, Alexa, did extensive research. We stayed at some amazing hotels and actually my kids to this day, I forget the name of it. I'll get it to you. Um, outside of Siem Reap, we stayed at this hotel and they still say it was the best hamburger they've ever had. Really? Totally crazy. Um, don't They don't eat hamburgers everywhere. It was just on the menu and they still compare every hamburger to that hamburger. That's like when my, I called my grandmother once uh, there was a Southern restaurant that had opened here. And I called my grandmother after I went and I was like, pretty sure I had the like best catfish and grits of my life in Boston. And she like hung the phone up on me. <laughs> and then, okay. So when you're on the road, what, what food do you miss the most? Um, to be honest. So I, <laughs> this is such a cop answer. I love cooking. So when I'm traveling, I, I miss um, just cooking anything because it's kind of my therapy of just kind of coming down from, you know, journalism, you don't know how your day is going to go and cooking you do. So it's kind of just my ritual of like start at A and you'll get to B. So that's kind of when I'm traveling, I'm trying to just eat whatever the local cuisine is where I am. The breakfast buffet. <laughs> I try to go to a local restaurant and not just the I, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, okay. So now like the journey shortener question, which I'm asking everyone, I'm getting some really great answers, but if you, you know, you walked up to yourself walk, walking out of Boston university, when you graduated, what advice would Cameron of today give the Cameron just finishing university? Pound the pavement. So just kind of, even if they don't want your writing, keep pro keep submitting it and eventually it'll get through. Wear out the shoe leather, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, and, and never say no to any assignment. Never say no to any assignment. Because again, I think the other thing that's been missing is these collisions between people and travel. And yeah, we're having it during Zoom, but we're missing the time of just bumping into people and learning from them. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, case in point, it, it's, uh, I was at the Alice conference and just meeting certain people, had, like, I, I've already seen a couple of instances of tangible results from that. And it's just, the power of in-person is, is very real. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So uh, Cameron, where can people connect with you? How can they find you? 
Yeah, uh, so I am on Twitter at Cameron Spirance and uh, on Instagram at Cam Spirance. And right. you can email me if you have any uh, tips at cs at skift.com. Great. And then uh, the company website for Skift is skift.com. Yeah, skift.com. So, yeah. All right, cool. And then any other blogs or um, websites or anything else that you to see your work? I, I would say go to Skift. That's that's me, and that's where you're. You'll find me usually about a story a day. So um, wonderful. Well, I'm checking it out. So uh, Cameron, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are, so thank you. No, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Uh, now you're making me blush. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, I hope that this chat with Cameron has evolved your ideas on hospitality. And if you learn something, please share it. Uh, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>